Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rick Schmidt. We're here with Leah Adent. Hi, Rich. Uh, we're at the ERATH office in Dundee. It's January 25th, 2023. Thank you so much for joining us, and hello and good morning Thank to you. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, first question to get you started okay. is why wine? Um, I got into wine. Like I was interested in wine at like 17, which is odd. I realize now not many other people. Um, I love the science. I was always going to go into something science. My ideas of like, what do I do for college was like veterinarian. I was like, that's a lot of school. I don't know that I'm ready for that. Um, but something science related. And I guess going back a little bit further, my dad was a wine distributor growing up in Alaska. So never had a cellar. Like I, we didn't drink wine at dinner, um, but I saw him go really cool places. He was a sales guy, so instead of trips, beautiful dinners, and I was like, oh, how do I travel? Um, I was going to get out of Alaska. <laughs> that, was, that was key. Um, science was key. And when I was looking at colleges, he got me a book on winemaking. And it was, it was not a technical book. It was a beautiful picture book of you know the glorious, romantic vineyards, estates, properties, all that stuff. But it was also like, there's a science to this, and you could actually get a science degree, which is also unknown to a lot of people, or was at the time anyway. Um, and you can go work at the most beautiful places in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of it. I started looking at winemaking programs. Um, so obviously Davis, but that was pretty expensive, going from Alaska. Um, and then Washington State had a program. And I have relatives in Washington. It's close to Alaska, but it's not Alaska. (laughs) Um, And just went for it, got great scholarships. Um, And that was kind of it. Loved it from day one. Go Cougs. Loved being in Pullman for four years and then getting out. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that that was kind of like my start into winemaking. Loved every second of university. It's weird to think of Pullman being like a warm place to go to for more you work. It's truly four seasons, yeah. (laughs) It does get warm. I wasn't really there in the summer a lot, but yeah. So before we get back to that, then we'll pick it up there. Tell me a little bit about life before college. What was life like growing up and what was sort of... Growing uh, up in Alaska? Exactly. Uh, It was the best. I mean, I was a typical outdoors, wild Alaska kid. Lots of hiking, camping, fishing, big skiing. I ski raced as a kid and then... At 13, I switched to snowboarding, and I've never put skis on again. Um, so I love snowboarding now. I go every weekend in the winter. That's, that is where I am. And, the, and Oregon's great for that. So is Washington. So is Canada. <laughs> so tell me about, uh, you mentioned enjoying your experience at Washington State. Tell me about learning wine, learning science in that level. And at, at, yeah. and at that time, what you kind of thought about you would do after, after school. Um, the Washington degree, I think, is, is good because it's so agriculture-based. I mean, the first three years really are plant biology, soil chemistry and biology, microbiology. Um, I had classes with a lot of turf guys, and I had, you know, the tree fruits. That's, you know, obviously very big in Washington. Um, but looking back, I really appreciate that base that I got of agriculture because I, if I didn't get it there, I don't think I would have gotten it through cellar experiences and other winemaking experiences. Um, and then the last year was, you know, wine microbiology, making, making wine Mm -hmm. for the first time in kegs. Um, and that was my, also my senior year. So at the same time, I'm like, doing soccer and jazz dance as electives. <laughs> so it, was, <laughs> it was a great, great time. Um, but yeah, I loved it. And like, I mean, I got really good grants and scholarships. I got the Chateau St. Michel scholarship um, and Le Don Escoffier scholarships. So it was, it was an all around great experience. Like I couldn't have had better opportunities out there. So did you ever waver from the path or was winemaking what you, Not what you were going to do? Nope. 
<laughs> I've, I've done nothing else for the last 15 years, <laughs> which is a little bit scary to think that if prohibition started back up, I don't know what I'd do with my life, but <laughs> fortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. So tell us about then after graduating Washington State, what was the next thing? Yeah, so my, I think I didn't even answer part of your last question. Um, the idea, you know, I think is that like most young wine graduates have this idea that, and I did, that you're going to go work for like, the goal is like, I'm going to go make $200 Cabernet in Napa, you know, the, the bougie boutique fruit costs $10,000 a ton and I'm making it and people are going to love it. You know, I think that's the dream, right? Like that's the idyllic dream. Um, so I went straight to Sonoma. I went to Napa right away after school. Um, and, and I had this kind of inkling. My, one of my last professors at WSU, um, Dr. Charlie Edwards, he, I had a meeting with him my senior year. I was kind of like, you know, what next? What, what do I do? And he was like, if you don't go get your master's degree, you're too smart, you're wasting your potential. I was like, I don't know if I need more school right now. Thanks, you know? Um, but he also was like, don't stay here. Like, go to Lincoln University in New Zealand. Like, go to Corn go somewhere else and keep going. Um, so I didn't listen to him at the time. <laughs> I went to Napa and Sonoma and worked a couple harvests, which were fantastic. Um, my first harvest in the Russian River was the best. You know, it was a 10-person team, everyone did everything, everyone got along, like I got to see the vineyards, I was technically a lab intern, but they let me help out in the cellar too, climbing barrels, tasting, um, it, was, it was just the best. I'm still friends with some of those people, and that was 2008 was my first harvest. Um, so it was on the smaller side, and then I went to Napa, and I worked at Sutter Home Main Street, which is one of the biggest operations in Napa, um, in the lab there too. So I got the complete opposite side, but I mean, that company is such a well, these are the time, I can't speak to it now, but well-run machine. I mean, that lab was, I've never seen a lab like it. Um, the amount of technology that they had and systems and procedures was really incredible. Um, and then I took a winter off and I was a ski bum in Idaho. It's an important part. <laughs> um, and then I went and got my master's degree in Adelaide. So I took that winter and applied to go live in Australia. And I mean, the day after I got my visa, which was three months before the program started, I was on a plane to Australia. Um, so I was a beach bum then <laughs> for a few months in Margaret River before I started at Adelaide Uni. Um, and that was, it was such a nice compliment to WSU, which was agriculture based. In Adelaide, it was all enology, all winemaking. Um, and again, loved it. They're so close to the industry in Adelaide that you're meeting winemaker, I mean, they're just there all the time. They're not just giving guests lectures or tastings or what, but they're just, it's just the whole scene is wine in Adelaide. Um, and they have a vineyard on the campus. They have a full-scale winery on the campus. And the, you know, the technical winemaker for the university was like, if you pick it, you can make it. Like as, as much as you can handle, like you gotta go through the whole thing, you can't leave a mess, but make as much as you can. So myself and a couple other graduate friends, I mean, we made, we probably made 50 cases worth of wine in a year, just doing it. it was super fun. Loved Adelaide. Lived in the wine house, which was kind of handed down from <laughs> graduate student to graduate student. <laughs> Worked in a tasting room up in the hills. Um, loved that. That was my only kind of wine retail experience, which I think is enough. Not for me. Uh, and then worked to sell a cellar hand harvest in the Hunter Valley. That was 2011. That was kind of 2011 was a rough year, I think, around the world. It was cold and wet. And went back to the Adelaide Hills. Um, spent seven months at a winery up there. That was one of my best mentors. His name is Peter Lesky. Really smart man. Um, he led me to Burgundy. He had friends in Burgundy and was like, 
do you want to go? And I was like, yes, I do. Um, so that's how I got to Burgundy. It was just kind of a, a mentor connection. Mm-hmm. Um, went back to Australia. And then at that point, I couldn't get on. I was off my student visa. So it was like, then the visa chase really started to stay in Australia. Um, so I started getting sponsored by a large winery down there. Um, so that was when I went to the Riverland, which most people don't know about the Riverland. It's kind of like Central Valley, California. Big, huge production. Um, was there for three years, and part of my stipulation of staying there was that they would let me go back to Europe in the off-season. So I did that, and I did England and Switzerland, and then back to the Riverland. How did they all, all, all these locations, how did they compare? Like, what, what was it you were getting from each one? What did you appreciate, and what did you maybe miss when you were in a different place? I mean, to me, that experience of seeing tiny wineries, massive wineries, family-owned wineries, corporate wineries, like you see the gamut, right, of, of equipment, of fruit sourcing, of fruit quality. Um, there's something to learn from all those places, even if you're like, I'll never work for a tiny winery again. You learn why or why not, right, or why it fits you, why it doesn't fit you. So my smallest harvest was about 20 tons. That was England. Um, tiny little family-run place. I lived with the family. Um, <laughs> I, I did a little bit of everything. Everyone did everything. Uh, and my largest harvest was 230,000 tons at various states, which is at that one facility what the entire state of Washington crushes. Um, so the technologies, you know, everything about it is, how are you, rec- you know. And in England, they didn't even have a wine tracking system. I was like, what did you do last year? And they couldn't show me. Oh, boy, you know. <laughs> let's, let's get you an Excel spreadsheet, get you moving. Um, and then, you know, compared to various states, which had, like, its own in-house developed systems and processes and... Ionic, I mean, pieces of equipment that I've never seen anywhere else. Ion exchanges and concentrators, and we made brandy. It was super cool. I had a love for fortifieds after working in various states. But I still have a love for fortifieds. Anything sweet, I'm a, it's my guilty pleasure. <laughs> so as you were working in those uh, various sizes, like you said, running the gamut, yeah. um, were you sort of starting to rank kind of ideal places to land? Were you thinking like large, small? Were you thinking? Um, not necessarily. People, I've gotten questions like, have you always loved Pinot now that I'm at a Pinot producing place? Or like, I never had an idea. I guess I never, I'll think about it positively. Um, I never wanted to like close a door for myself. It was always like, I don't know what's gonna happen next, but like I'm open to nearly everything. I think most, most people wouldn't love to go to the Riverland and live for three years in that kind of place and make that kind of wine. Um, but the amount that I learned from it and the amount that I saw, and I got to make super cool, you know, I've never made Montepulciano and Zapparavi and, you know, Palomino Sherry in the same place. Like, and I probably never will see those varieties again. Um, and when I, so in between making those huge volumes of wine, it was like, oh, there's, there's a cellar full of fortified barrels from the 60s that have never moved. And you're like, oh, can I go taste them? And you're like, yeah, you can go taste them, you know? Um, and you know, they had a proper floor sherry set up that I've never seen, you know? Unless you're in Spain, you're probably not gonna find that too many places. Um, so it's, uh, my, I feel like my whole career has kind of been like, I'll just wait and see what next door is going to open, and I'm probably going to take every opportunity I can. I don't like to say no to things, um, which has served me really well, honestly. Like it's, I never would have thought that I would go work in central England or Switzerland. Switzerland, you know, I try, was trying to go back to France, um, and the EU changed their visa rules. Visas are some of the hardest things to find in the winemaking world. And I was like, okay, well, I can't go back to the EU, or it'll be really hard at least. Uh, Switzerland is not a Schengen, or it's Schengen, but it's not EU, so maybe I can go there and found a place and went for it. And like England, not a place that's commonly thought of as Yeah. So tell me about that experience in Switzerland. (sighs) Switzerland was 
maybe the most challenging harvest I've ever worked as far as the winery management went. Um, it was really, it was the most beautiful place I've ever lived, hands down. I mean, I was living on Lake Geneva. I would walk past the patisserie and pick up my little baguette and my, ugh, the pastries there are so good. Um, walk to work, walk home, watch the sunset on Lake Geneva. I mean, it was insane, but the winery was kind of like poorly managed and poorly run and people didn't want to work. They just showed up and like, you know, hid, which you can hide in the cellar pretty easily. Um, so like, you know, learning how not to run a winery. Like, boy, I never want to work for someone like this again. Or like, I don't want to be this kind of leader. Um, super cool fruit. You know, the Swiss have varieties that they don't let out in the world. So, you know, Chasselas, an okay white, but they have Petit Arvine, which is really beautiful. And then they have two reds that I've never seen anywhere else, Guerin Noir and Gamma Ray. Um, and they're delicious. So yeah, that, I learned a lot <laughs> there. <laughs> and then as soon as, you know, Switzerland's a very expensive place to live and travel. So as soon as I got done working, I went to Portugal. It's like, <laughs> back to the beach. <laughs> it was a lot cheaper. <laughs> so after all the, these travels, mm -hmm. what eventually brings you out of Australia or out of that kind of back and forth between Europe and Australia? Um, I was out of visas in Australia. Like I said, I was being sponsored by this large company and they owned properties in different wine regions. And I was really eager to go to some nicer wine regions, like a nicer winery, you know, trying to make a little higher price bottle, a little bit better fruit quality. Um, and they were quite content with me staying at the big place. I was doing a good job. And so there wasn't a lot of opportunity to move around. Finding a visa off that sponsorship was getting harder and harder. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm kind of done. I'm going to go do something else. I bought a one way ticket to New Zealand. I was like, I'm going to go to New Zealand and be a ski bum and figure it out. <laughs> um, but I was also looking elsewhere around the world. Um, applying to things, looking for the right opportunity. And a job at Chateau St. Michel came up as the traveling winemaker. I was like, all right, that's interesting sounding. That fits. Um, so my first, so I interviewed for that job. It was like midnight, 1230 in Australia. And I was interviewing with now our chief winemaker for St. Michel. Um, and you know, this was over Skype, like this was before the Zoom days. Um, and it went good, it went well. I was like, oh, this is really positive. This might put a, a crook in the New Zealand plan. Um, I didn't tell them I had a one-way ticket to New Zealand. I was like, yeah, I'm coming back to the US, you know, just a couple weeks. Um, and then they're like, well, great. When you get here, we'll do a second interview. I was like, oh, I just shot myself in the foot there. Um, so I. I, made, I was like, it feels good. Maybe I'll go back to Washington. So I canceled my one-way ticket, um, went straight to Washington for the second interview. It was a three-day interview across the state um, with the director of winemaking for Chateau St. Michel. And on the third day, they offered me the job, thankfully. Um, <laughs> and so that's how I got back to Washington. So I started as the assistant traveling winemaker for Chateau St. Michel. Um, loved it, made more wine in Washington than most other people. So that was not only, I guess it was not only for Chateau St. Michel, but a couple of the power brands, so Columbia Crest and 14 Hands as well, um, across six different facilities. And did that for a while and then got promoted to winemaker for Canoe Ridge Estate, so the premium red winemaking facility for Chateau St. Michel. Loved that. That was 2018, 19, and 20. I spent at Cooney Ridge. And then the opportunity for ERAF, it was like just, just another one of those opportunities. Like, are you interested? I'm like, yeah, I'm interested. Check out, I haven't been to Oregon yet, you know? <laughs> and that's how I found myself here. We'll come back to that in a second, but I'm curious. Assistant traveling winemaker for yeah. brands of that size and that and the state of that size, 
give me an idea of how like your typical like day week month was in that, in that job like what, what a lot of car time um i mean i think harvest start at harvest so all three of those brands are bringing fruit into their own wineries but because they're so large they're sending fruit to these partner satellite facilities so I'm walking that fruit for them or they're walking it and getting it on the schedule. And then it's visiting every one of those facilities at least twice a week during harvest. So you're tasting as much as you possibly can. Um, big days were five wineries in a day. Other, day. other days it's maybe you're just at one or maybe it's a vineyard day. Mondays and Thursdays were big vineyard days. Um, and it's also because it's multi-brand, it's multi-region. So you're seeing fruit come in from as far away as Ancient Lakes, through the Yakima Valley, um, Horse Heaven, North and South. So I got to learn very quickly the entire state's fruit supply, essentially. Um, got to meet all the St. Michelle winemakers and also all the winemakers that were part of these partner mm -hmm. facilities um, and see all their different pieces of equipment because um, they're all large, but they're all built differently, different eras, you know, the new ones, the old ones, the upgrades. One was a former onion packing facility, and so it had, you know, that kind of hexagon shape, um, which was unique. Some were, like, brand new and state-of-the-art, and you're like, oh, I wish every winery had this piece of equipment right here, you know? Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a lot. Um, but day-to-day... Visiting those places, tasting, making, okay, you're making, this is for 14 hands, hot to trot, here's the t style we're targeting, let's turn it up or turn it down or use this yeast um, for all three brands. And then outside of Harvest, it's getting them, if they're coming in filtered, let's get them filtered or cleaned up or blended together at that under that roof. And then that blend is going to become part of this larger blend coming from five. So it's a lot of shipping and coordination and making sure everyone's ready at the right time to get it to bottle. It was fun. It was a big puzzle. It's a big puzzle, which, which I like. <laughs> and then in 2018, you finally got to the luxury brand that you'd, al you'd always dreamed of. Yeah. So tell us about that. So much good fruit. I mean, that was still the difference. As the assistant traveling winemaker, you know, it was the fruit that wasn't going to the in-house facility. So it was, you know, the more production style, all machine picked fruit. Um, and then getting to go to Canoe Ridge where it's, we're taking fruit from the St. Michelle Estate vineyards, which are incredible. And also picking and choosing what we're bringing into our winery. And we want, you know, the premium treatment of the barrels um, that we'll go into. Canoe Ridge is insane. It's got like 80,000 barrels. It's truly a labor of love. So if you're bringing one ton in of Grenache, it gets the same treatment as 40 tons of Cabernet coming from down the street. Um, everything gets the premium treatment regardless of the bottle that it's going into. Amazing amount of winemaking toys, like concrete tanks, um, oak upright tanks, nice pumps, just all the cool all the fun things. I imagine it comes with a bit more pressure on, on, the, on what, what you're creating, though. Um, I mean, yeah, you start working with higher cost fruit, like it better, it better not suck, right? I mean, but I think that's, in my mind, that's one of the luxuries about working for someone large is that if I bring in 40 tons of Grenache and split it up five different ways, maybe I only really need like three of those five to be fantastic and the rest I get to like move that Grenache into a red blend or as a little Syrah booster. You know, there's, there's so many more avenues that the wine can go into that I think it gives a lot of leeway for winemakers to be a little bit more adventurous, experiment a little more because if one experiment doesn't go well, it's not the end of the world versus if you're at a really small place where you're only bringing in 20 tons of fruit, like that 20 tons is your lifeline for the next year, you know? So we experimented a lot at Canoe. I mean, there was not a time where you'd say like, your experiment's too weird, we're not gonna try it. We tried everything. <laughs> Anything in particular that you remember of exciting, exciting um, We really upped our extended maceration programs there. So we had these little two-ton uprights, which are actually really common in Oregon. Um, 
and ferment in them and then just leave it and forget about it for months. Um, seal it up, but yeah, just so 30 days on skins, 40 days on skins, 60 days on skins. I mean, the seller was not happy because it means like you're not really cleaning up for harvest yet. Things are still, they're still grapes. <laughs> Um, but such cool wines. I mean, when they, when they work, they are really special. Um, so we did a lot of Syrah, Grenache, and Merved that way. We would also kind of, so that was a red-only winemaking facility. Um, and sometimes we'd be asked to do projects with the white team or on behalf of the white team. And so there's, you know, like some friendly rivalry or how can we do it better than the white team, you know? So we did... One year we made orange wines, so you know white grapes on skins for the whole fermentation. And we probably did six different white varieties: so Pinot Gris, Gewürztraminer, Chardonnay, Semillon, Riesling. Some of them were good, some of them were not. You know? <laughs> That's okay. Um, we would, for some of the white programs like the Chateau Saint Michel, uh, single berry select Rieslings, the really sticky concentrated Rieslings. Um, those would actually get pressed at the red facility because we had the tiny little press. So it was like, okay, how concentrated can we make this juice so that they really struggle when they receive it? <laughs> it, was, it was good. We did it. <laughs> Obviously, you had spent you had spent time before that making wine at scale. Obviously, in Australia and other mm -hmm. places, making lots and lots of wine. Tell me about, you talk about some of the advantages in that. Tell me about sort of the challenges of having that many, that many people, that many barrels, that many mm. projects going it's on at one time. It's definitely not for everybody. I mean, I, I love it. Like, I like the puzzle. I like that there's some challenge that's going to happen every single day. Whether you're, you don't have enough fruit and you're, like, trying to extend a blend that needs to hit a target, you know. Um, we did that with Rosé for Chateau Saint-Michel, so they... Chateau St. Michel hadn't had like a commercially available rosé up until 2016. They had a club rosé, but not something that we were like, we're missing, you know, we're missing this huge shelf space. So the first year we made 30,000 cases. And we're like, we think this is a good, good number. Um, blew it out of the water, had to extend it by 10,000 cases. And you're like, I don't know. Like, so you're looking at, fortunately, you're looking at the other brands and seeing what they might have available. Um, and then the next year, we went from 30,000 cases to 200,000 cases. <laughs> so like, okay, so this is, this is going to be a different fruit source. So like what, you know, we can extend our fruit supply, which we used last year so far. We can ask them to make a little, grow a little more, but you need a whole different fruit supply. Um, how are we going to get the same color that we got last year using different fruit? All those kinds of things. Um, but that's a fun challenge in my mind. Like it's, that's part of the fun to like be asked to stretch things or, or, you know, we export to almost, I think 70 different countries. And so it's, you know, some, not that the regulatory side is fun, but like making, making a product that's going to work in these different markets because they do have different regulations. Mm -hmm. Um, Things like that. I don't know. I enjoy it. I think I do think if I went to a tiny winery now, I'd be pretty bored throughout the year. <laughs> I don't know what I'd be doing right now. <laughs> yeah, snowboarding is really what I'd be doing right now, which doesn't sound so bad. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's you know, working for a corporate winery certainly is different. There's a lot of different lanes and avenues and people to talk to compared to a small winery that. I know I just need to go to talk to the family owner, you know, and get this approval. In my world, it's maybe it's getting three approvals or like sending it up a chain or putting in a proper purchase order, you know, like going through the motions of corporate winemaking. But I think that's good to learn. Like, I don't mind learning about a business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a bad thing. So, yeah, I enjoy it. I enjoy the big aspect. And... We have the best technology, you know, like cross flows are not new for us. That's, that should be a staple, I think, in everyone's cellar at this point. But I understand why small wineries don't have it. But um, one of the things I shared one year at the Washington Wine Conference was a de-alcohol trial. Um, and some people, some winemakers are like, I will never look at de-alc. Like, they won't even look at it, right? But if it's a tool in the toolbox and it makes the wine better... 
I don't see the harm in that. Mm -hmm. I, that's my philosophy. So, you know, Washington gets really high sugars. Like you might have a 16% Grenache at the end of fermentation, even if you added some water. Um, at least that was our style at the time. Like we really liked some ripe fruit. Um, but then you can look at that deal trial, you can pull some alcohol out of it and you'll be looking at 16 down to 15.5, down to 15.0, down to 14.5, 14.0. And the difference is like when you actually get to put that in front of another winemaker and be like, do you taste the sweet spot? Cause there's a spot where it's in balance and it's beautiful and it lifts the fruit and it lifts the tannins and you're like, it's, it's such a better wine. Um, so like things like that, like we have that in house in Washington. Um, it's pretty cool. I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> so you mentioned that, uh, when the Erath job came available, you had not, had not spent time in Oregon yet. Uh, mm -hmm. All the places you've been making wine, never Oregon yet. So, um, tell me about what the appeal of the job was and sort of what your initial impressions were once you got started. I mean, I think a lot of the appeal was the opportunity to be a head winemaker somewhere and really like lead a brand. Um, new place, you know, I like to travel and, and Eastern Washington is beautiful in its own way, but Oregon is gorgeous, certainly the Willamette Valley. Um, so, you know, being closer to the ocean, being closer to the mountains, it's, you know, regionally, I think it's a very spectacular place. Mm. Um, to have a focus like Pinot Noir, I don't know, it's fun. It's very different as far as red varieties go. It kind of lives in its own space. You can make beautiful rosé from it. You can make beautiful bubbles from it. Like it's the way I saw it was like, okay, I'm making 20 different red varieties in Washington. I'm going to give that up. Like that's a little hard, but you can make Pinot 20 different ways, right? You know, like with the clones and the sites and just how, how little differences around here can give you big variation. It's pretty cool. Um, so that was, I don't know, that was a huge draw. Being able to make whites and rosés and reds again, like I was making only red wine for three years and you miss the other side of it. Mm -hmm. I miss the other side of it. Um, so yeah, I think those, I don't know, it was just, it felt like the right opportunity. It was, St. Michelle's giving me so many great opportunities. It would, I don't know, it just suited me to be, yep, ready for the next one. And then when I got here, and I never thought about this at the time until I got here, and they're like, oh, you're the third Erath winemaker in 50 years. I was like, that's, I'm glad I didn't know that until I got, <laughs> didn't realize that until I got here, you know? Cause like, then you hear that and you're like, oh, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> Whew. <laughs> what did you think of Oregon and the Oregon sort of winemaking scene when you got here? It's very different from Washington and California, that's for sure. Um, people like things small here, <laughs> like, which is silly because we're the big winery. Um, what I love about that viewpoint is that people really care about the vineyards and the small side of it and doing the right thing, even if it's not the most cost effective thing. Um, you know, a lot of our growers live on site or they live next door. And so they're out there every day. It's their baby just as much as like, I love that fruit and that fruit becomes my baby. They, they really care. It's, you know, Washington, some of those big farms are their apples and their cherries and their grapes and their hops. And they have that kind of more agriculture production mentality, which is super important. But I think the night, the little family run just, these are my four acres and that's all I got, you know, and they know every vine. Like, that's really cool. It's really cool down here. Um, the wine, I think, I don't know. People can tend to keep to themselves, I think, more in Oregon as far as like sharing winemaking ideas and styles and that we don't all have to taste like Burgundy, you know? I mean, I think there's a real, I think there's a real, um, people kind of get stuck in their ways in Oregon. Like they either want to be Burgundy or they don't want to be Burgundy. And you're like, there's room for everybody, right? Um, it doesn't need to be so you're on one side or the other. And I think some people get into that in Oregon. <laughs> but I think Oregon's done a great job of being like, we're the next Burgundy. Mm -hmm. I think 
as a region, they've done a really great job of attracting Burgundian winemakers here and dollars here and saying like, we're not Burgundy, but these are the reasons why we're just as good, if not better. Tell me about getting to know Pinot Noir specifically as a focus and, yeah. uh, and starting, to under, starting to get to know sort of the Willamette Valley terroir. It's a lot. I never thought I'd talk about soil so much. <laughs> like, soil's not my jam, I'll be honest. Like, I love yeast. I could talk about yeast and bacteria all day. Um, soil's like, you know, it's dirt. But here, like, people love it. They cannot get enough of it. And, like, I get it. Like, when I, our two estate vineyards here are 20 minutes away, and they couldn't be more different. Versus Washington, you could drive for 100 miles and it's the same dirt. Um, so it is, I mean, it is pretty cool and it really does make a different Pinot Noir. So we've got three or four clones of Pinot at both of our sites. Um, and it's pretty, like our Yola Amity Hills property, Willakaya, it really is a patchwork. I mean, from the bottom at 300 feet of elevation to the top at 900, like I can pick that over three, four weeks and I'll keep making different wines and then you combine that with the different soils that are there. We've got some riverbed and then we've got some more traditional jewelry and we've got some Nakaya and we've, it's, it's so different. We have irrigation on parts of it and then parts of it that will never need irrigation. I mean, it's, it's so different across a driveway, um, which is super fun as a winemaker and that's where I get to be like, I'm going to make some early picks and some late picks and I'll get my little triple seven clones together and wait for the top of the hill to ripen at the very end of the season. Um, and that's the same with our Dundee Hills. It's a little more uniform at our Dundee Hills property, but from the bottom to the top is 500 feet of elevation difference. And you can see it in the ripeness for sure. And in the clones. So it's cool. I mean, Pinot, Pinot is a different beast, you know, like you're at white wine pH and you don't have the tannins and the color. And, you know, in Washington, it's about like, backing off of tannin maceration. Like we don't need to build the biggest wine possible. And here it's like, no, I got to work it a little bit, you know? Yeah, it's a different beast, which is fun. So you started here right as the world was changing in 2020. Tell, yeah. <laughs> tell, me, tell me about 2020 for you and, and sort of picking all that up while dealing with the global <sighs> pandemic and an interesting harvest. Yeah, moving is really hard during a pandemic. It's, they don't make it easy. Um, so I came to Erath in May of 21. So it was like, you know, we've been doing it for a hot minute. Um, <laughs> but, you know, people are wearing masks like at the winery where I'm meeting people and learning people like I don't see they saw I don't think they saw my face for months and then you have that weird I don't know if you like met people during the pandemic but you're like oh that's what the bottom of your face looks like it's not what I expected <laughs> okay um so yeah there's an extra level it's certainly the first harvest at the winery they were really trying to limit how many people came in every day and so it was like can I bring my, like, I want my viticulture team to come and taste. And they were a little like, well, we don't want people. So we tasted outside. Um, yeah, it was weird. <laughs> it was definitely weird. And certainly like Oregon had some of the more strict rules about access and like our tasting room opened and then it closed and then it opened for outdoors and then it closed. And you're like, that's tough. Mm -hmm. That is no fun. <laughs> so tell me about the expectations uh, as you understood them when you took the job and sort of how the first, the first harvest went and the sort of how things have unfolded since. So the, the first year I got to work with the previous winemaker of Erath, Gary Horner. So we worked together for that whole year. Just, I mean, he showed me all the vineyards, his winemaking styles at the winery that he's crafted over 20 years. I mean, really dialed in we'd drive around the Dundee Hills and he'd not just our vineyards, but he'd point out every single vineyard, who owns it, where it's been, when it got replanted. I mean, just the intimacy of his knowledge was so cool to pick apart. Um, 21 harvest in Oregon was like the ripest, warmest, earliest harvest. I'm like, Oh, well, this is great. Like this is easy. There was no rot. There was no mold. Like it was, it was dry and it was warm. And, um, 
we picked, um, we started picking a month earlier than we started in 22. So like it couldn't have been two more different harvests. In 21, we started on August 25th, which I think is the earliest that Erath has ever started. And in 22, I started on September 25th. And that was cause like, I need to get going. Like, I don't really think some of this fruit is right where it needs to be yet, but on the production side, you got to start cause the rains are coming. So, <laughs> um, so couldn't have been more different, but yeah. And then Gary retired one year after I started more or less. Um, and so then it's like, well now, okay, I'm on my own. Here we go. So making every single pit call, you know, at Chateau St. Michelle, we were a team of four. So you're making all those same decisions, but you always have someone to bounce it off of or talk through those things. And here it's like, well, I can talk to myself, but that, you know, which I do. Um, but yeah, making every single pit call, making every decision in the winery, answering all the questions. It's, as I've gone through my career, I think when you're working for someone, certainly in a harvest, you're like, well, I would have, I wouldn't have done that. I would have pressed it earlier. Or, you know, it's, it's easy to say that when you're not actually making that decision. And when you're actually making that decision, especially during harvest, when so many of those decisions, you can never go back. Like you can never put fruit back on the vine. You can never like go back and once you press that wine, I mean, those, I think those are two of the biggest decisions you can have in winemaking is like the day you pick and the day you press. Um, so yeah, making all of those all of the time. Took a minute to, to be okay with it, mm -hmm. but it's also super fun <laughs> as long as it goes well. <laughs> With that kind of scale, um, how do you sort of keep track of what you're looking for for the pick for those important dates? How how are you sort of monitoring everything you need to monitor? Uh, Oregon is unique in that sense, I think, because we do a lot of machine pick fruit, but we also do a lot of hand pick fruit, and everybody else is doing mostly hand pick fruit. And there's only so many crews out there. I mean, the labor supply is real and it's tough. So I'm making pick calls seven, 10 days early, which I would never do otherwise. I would do that in two or three days because I want to I wanna hit that nail on the head, right? But here, you just don't have that luxury. And every vineyard's a little bit different. Some vineyards have their own crews. Some are like, here's the window. Take, take these three days or don't, but you're not going to have another window for a week. So it's, it's a lot of back and forth. I have a great viticulture team who helps me, who's out there, meeting with every single grower going, this is starting to fall apart. Like we need to, we need to bump this up on the schedule and send something else, you know, down the road. Um, and then there's the winery constraints. We can only do so much fruit in a day. And in a year like 22 where everything was ready, I mean, there was really like 10 days for a lot of people that were harvest ready. I stretched that to like five weeks, but, but like you're trying to make every pit call the best you can. And also the reality of a production winery is that like, I got to start so that I can finish. I got to turn these tanks. Like I don't have a tank for every single lot of fruit. Um, but I, I don't know. I like that scheduling, that problem solving, that part of it. So I couldn't do it without my team. That's for sure. <laughs> and how does the facility here compare for, for as you've gotten kind of gotten used to making wine here? Um, it's a cool facility. It's a former what chestnut facility. Um, so it's got like, it's different old parts, new parts, upgrades. I really like that it has like a premium side and then it has a production side and they live very independently. So they have different teams. They have different winemakers that I work with. Um, the premium side is really cool. It's very dialed in. Um, it's very Oregon Pinot Noir. It's, you know, everything is a little two ton open top and they just forklift them around and it's, it's very well set up. Um, and on the production side, it's, you know, there's only three big wineries in Oregon. Let's be real. So it's like, it's one of them. Um, so it's cool. You know, it's different, but it's not that different. Big wineries are big wineries. And as obviously since you got here in 2021, uh, and the world is still kind of 
weird then. Mm -hmm. um, how has it been for you to kind of get to know the industry, get to know your neighbors, uh, see the yeah. rest of what the Valley has? I mean, that's definitely tough. I think like 2021, 20, a lot of symposiums, shows, association meetings were canceled or at least over teams. And so you're not really meeting people. Um, so it's definitely been slow, but getting out there. <laughs> I'm glad to see things open up. Um, looking ahead then, uh, for yourself, what's, uh, what comes next for you as you're here? Um, I don't know what comes next. I mean, there's a lot to learn here. Like I'm, you know, I'm just two years of getting to know these vineyards. There's a lot to learn with the vineyards. And I think like, that's where I need to have most of my focus, getting to know our farms, our growers, the different clones. Um, so just getting to know it all. And, and I think for the Erath style, Gary has done such a great job like building it, you know, from where it was when Dick sold it to St. Michelle to becoming the largest Pinot producer in the state of Oregon um, is really impressive. And so when I think about like where I might take this style, like I don't want to ruin what has been built and has been successful over the last, well, the last 50 years, but the last 20 under Gary. Um, but also, like, I want to kind of start to put my little signature on wines or make sure that we're making the wines that the next generation wants to drink, um, what that might look like. So, you know, I think it comes with learning the fruit and learning how different harvest to harvest can be here. Uh, and then going, well, what if we, you know, what if we turn this dial or turn this down or... Just think about making the wine slightly different. Um, so I've got a lot of experiments this year. You know, I'll, I'll change this tank and see what it does. So I'm not trying to change the style overnight, but I also want to put some spark back into it a little bit, you know? Um, and even more so on the single vineyards where I have a little bit more freedom to make things look different. Um, so whether that's a little bit of extended maceration, which I love, a little bit of whole cluster, just kind of playing around with different techniques that I've seen other places on Pinot and on other varieties. Um, seeing, you know, what works at Willakaya might not work at Night's Gambit, but I got to play with it to figure that out. And I know you haven't seen a lot uh, of change in the Oregon industry, but I'm curious as you sort of look ahead for Oregon wine, what do you see might be coming next? Uh, anything of interest or anything of concern as you look down the road? Mm, I mean, I mean, I know people here are concerned, certainly if you're dry farming, concerned about hotter and hotter climates. Um, but 22 was cold and wet, so <laughs> you know, it was it was a challenge of ripeness this year, and last year was a challenge of over ripeness. Um, I think people are starting to play with different varieties. You know, they're not, not everyone is so focused on Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, which I think is fun. I'd love to see some more Sauv Blanc out here. I think everyone would love to see more Pinot Blanc out here. Um, I love Syrah. If I wasn't making Pinot Noir, I'd be making Syrah. So seeing that dabble throughout the different regions a little bit um, is pretty cool. I see that up and coming. Um, I mean, I think people here, there's still, you know, unrooted vines out here that people need to replant. And I understand that struggle, but it's, it's got to happen. Um, so, yeah, I see a lot of farming, the farming side of things. Like, I know people are nervous and, and looking to different aspects. Like, nor maybe we need to start looking at north-facing slopes where historically everyone's planted on the south-facing slopes, things like that. Like, People are a little more open to irrigation now than even a couple of years ago. I, we have one vineyard where the grower just put in irrigation last year because of what happened in 21. So I think that's all positive. Like I think, you know, having the traditions are great, but that doesn't mean we always have to keep doing those things, especially if they're not working or especially if they come with a different risk that that different risk didn't used to be a case. Um, so yeah. I think on the winemaking side, I'd love to see the bigger operations act like bigger operations. Some of them still act small. You know, like, you know, we gotta, we gotta take that next leap, you know? Um, which I think I can help bring to the area because I've seen it done successfully before in other places, so. 
Um, so if you had to offer advice or words of wisdom for people getting into the wine industry, what would you tell them? Mm, I tell everyone like, keep your doors open. Like I would never want, I mean, and I was this way too. Like, I don't want to go work for like a corporate run winery for a big winery, but even if you don't love it, even if you just work a harvest, like you're going to learn some things and you're going to see some things that you'll never see otherwise. And like, what a good opportunity that is. And you're going to get paid better. So like go do it for six months, get the experience and then see if it's for you or if it's not for you, you know? Um, but like, I can't imagine if I had that mentality where I was like, well, no, I'm only going to work in Burgundy or I'm only going to make Pinot Noir. Like, I think I'd miss out on so many opportunities. So that's what I try and tell everyone is just like, keep your doors open, work hard. Like you want to be the person that's kept on after harvest when everyone else is let go. Like you want to be the person where that winemaker says, Hey, you've done a great job all year. You have a great attitude. Are you interested in going to Burgundy? Right? Like that, I think that pays off so well in the wine industry where it is. So like, it's a small industry, the people that you meet, like you're going to see them again. So the more clout you can have with anybody, like, and you don't have to be friends with everybody, but you know, when harvest is hard and everybody's tired, like bring the person that brings in cookies, like they will love you for it. I mean, I can't tell you how many times like cookies makes the difference between a good day and a bad day in a cellar, you know? And, and that's not hard. Like, it's just, it's just having that like mentality that I'm going to work hard. I'm going to keep working hard and doors will open for you. I really believe that. All right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Is there Ooh. anything I didn't ask that I should have? I don't think so. I feel like I just talked a lot. <laughs> That's always the point. So okay, I'm good. I'm glad you feel that way. Well, thank you so much for your time. Of for course. sharing your stories yeah. with us. And uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you thank so you. much. This is really fun. Good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.